Welcome to Life Solved, the research podcast from the University of Portsmouth. This time, how can we combine community-focused research and action with global initiatives to tackle our world's greatest problems? The really important thing is this participatory element, talking about how we could use those methods to research community resilience and adaptation to climate change and how we can also use those creative methods to motivate climate action. From air pollution to plastic waste, ocean sustainability and climate change, nothing's off the agenda this time. Let's catch up with Dr. Cressida Boya. In an earlier episode of Life Solved, we met Cressida alongside Dr. Louis Netter and heard about their work using art to create social interventions during the spread of COVID-19 in informal settlements near Nairobi through ACT Nairobi. My name's Dr. Cressida Boyer. I'm Senior Research Fellow at the University of Portsmouth and I work as part of the Revolution Plastics Initiative. And Revolution Plastics is looking at ways to tackle the amount of plastic pollution on our planet. Cressida's also worked with populations on tackling air pollution and promoting lung health through awareness and engagement in communities. What's unique about Cressida's approach is that she combines creative methods of engagement to share information and collaborates with community activists to make sure the context is relevant and effective. This happens within a framework of science and research that allows her to focus on the impact of the work. She explained. We really started off with how we can use creative methods to disseminate science findings, but then I got very interested in how we can use creative methods as a research tool. I'm really interested in an approach called community-based participatory research, which is basically research in the community, for the community, with the community, in order to benefit the community. The sort of plain thinking is that how can you start creating solutions to community problems without actually consulting properly with the communities in the first place? And of course, when you do start consulting with communities, you realise that there's enormous amount of local knowledge and expertise and what's called in the jargon social capital. You not only are you finding out what is actually relevant and what really one needs to know to create successful interventions, but you also engage the community at that point with the research. Cressida's approach involves collaboration with community champions. These individuals are the conduit between researchers and the community. In many awareness raising or sensitization campaigns, for example, in emphasizing the importance of hand washing during COVID-19, these individuals have a vital role to play in communicating the goals and background of the project with local people. That's absolutely vital when people are required to share their personal information for the benefit of research and its ultimate impact on their lives. We heard on that earlier episode how the team used digital storytelling as well as puppet shows, murals, parades, comics and music to share information 
and invite people to engage in experiences of health and sanitation in their communities during COVID-19. This has since expanded into the Tupamui project that's generating lived experience accounts vital to planning interventions in specific communities. People really need to understand what's going on so they're not suspicious about a project to give consent for their children to be involved. Tupamui, Let's Breathe in Swahili, is a project that's been using these methods to explore the impact of air pollution in youth upon life expectancy. Tupamui works with specific communities in Kenya's informal settlements. Air pollution is a huge problem in these informal settlements. There's a lot of burning of plastic waste and just the everyday experiences, you know, the way people cook, the fact that the informal settlements are surrounded by unregulated industry who are like basically discharging toxic gases into the local environment. One of the definitions of air pollution that came up when we did the Air Network project is the smell of the sewage that's kind of running through drainage channels in the streets. For instance, the smell of sewage isn't something that would sort of academic researcher wouldn't traditionally be classed as air pollution. Um, I mean, yeah, methane gas might be, but bad odour wouldn't be, but it came out very clearly. Context is everything in successfully communicating, gathering and interpreting data on the local and community scale. Cressida explained how this localised approach is increasingly vital in understanding how to answer questions on a wider scale. We really need to access and acknowledge this local expertise. You know, when we're talking about things like adaptation and resilience to climate change, you know, resilience is is the sort of shock absorber, if you like, in a community or an ecosystem or an individual as to how they can absorb and adapt to shock change. How can anybody possibly know what resilience there is in an individual or a community unless you go and find out (laughs) or ask the community to do the research. This concept of resilience is fundamental to a range of projects the University of Portsmouth is backing in order to tackle global problems. We'll find out more in a moment, but first... The STEP project stands for Sustainable Transition to End Plastic Pollution and aims to address one of the world's biggest environmental and social crises. This is just one example of how localised understanding can offer information on the escalation of global problems. We know that cities in the global south are disproportionately affected by plastic pollution. The global south per capita production of plastic pollution is much lower than it is in the global north. But when you travel to these countries, as you probably know, you know, you see enormous amounts of plastic in the environment. One of the reasons for that is that we, the global north, export a lot of our plastic waste to the global south. And we export the most difficult to recycle waste, if you like. 50% and more of our plastic waste is exported to countries in the global south. They don't even have the infrastructure to deal with their own plastic waste, let alone our plastic waste. In Bangladesh, for the STEP project, we're working in a city called Sulet, 
which is a city of just under a million people and again suffers from pretty bad local plastic pollution in the environment. Now the consequences of that plastic pollution in the environment are manifold. So a lot of plastic waste is burnt because there's so much of it, people don't really know what to do with it. So it's burnt. That kind of reduces its bulk. However, burning of plastic waste releases not only greenhouse gases, but also some pretty toxic cancer-causing chemicals. Plastic pollution also blocks the drainage channels, so you get pools of untreated human waste, which of course can cause outbreaks of cholera and uh, breeding grounds for parasitic diseases and mosquito-borne diseases. The plastic waste gets blown into rivers and then obviously the rivers carry the plastic waste down to the sea and then it becomes ocean plastic pollution. Plastic waste on land, it stops people being able to use the land for farming. It's just everywhere. It's quite horrific actually. So we really wanted to work with the communities in these two environments to explore what kind of interventions might help to reduce the amount of plastic waste in the environment? Provision of bins, relatively straightforward, encouraging people to use them, teaching people how to use them, how to separate waste for recycling. And then the chain up, so you've got a full bin, so then what do you do? <laughs> What happens to all the stuff in the bin? So maybe you've separated out your plastics, but what do you do with all the non-recyclable waste? So it's an enormous problem, but we're working with different um, stakeholders in the waste disposal process, if you like. In Select, we're working with city councillors, and we've got the support of the mayor, who's very keen to improve the situation in Select. So we'll have the opportunity to recommend infrastructure changes as part of the project. We're also looking at how small-scale social enterprises can operate recycling initiatives, how they can secure funding for that. We'll also be running some focus groups and community consultations and doing some participatory mapping to identify pollution hotspots. And hopefully by mapping the hotspots, that will help us to map some potential solutions. But clearly, that's only working at one side of the problem. Cressida describes our global challenges as wicked problems. These global wicked problems, they don't have boundaries. You know, they don't stop at the border between countries. And that's why we have to have global efforts to address these global problems. Climate change, pollution, biodiversity loss, what UNEP call like the big three, current global, I don't, I think it's completely okay to call them crises. This is why it's so important to make sure that the research isn't just happening from the top down. You know, we can keep measuring things and I'm not saying there isn't any value in measuring things, but we also need to really seriously start thinking about applied research and, you know, finding solutions and working with people in different environments to start talking about what solutions are going to work and what solutions aren't going to work. 
there's an urgency now. You know, we know that if we don't change our ways as far as plastic waste goes, that I think plastic pollution is predicted to double by 2030. And it's already bad. And, you know, similarly in reaching the climate action targets, getting to net zero by 2050, it's about how we're going to do that. This November, governments from around the world will gather in Glasgow for COP26, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, in which collaboration on the international scale will help set the agenda for facing these crises in years to come. The University of Portsmouth and its Revolution Plastics programme will be playing its part. One of the things that we'd like to bring to COP26 is how plastic waste contributes to climate change, how addressing plastic waste is a climate action. But then the other thing that we'd like to highlight as part of COP26 is this community-based participatory approach and action research. And we will be showcasing the creative methodologies that we've used in these projects so far, talking about how we could use those methods to research community resilience and adaptation to climate change and how we can also use those creative methods to motivate climate action. The University of Revolution Plastics are strongly committed to playing a role in the delivery of this net zero resilient world. We'll be running our own Portsmouth-centric COP26 events, but also in Glasgow, highlighting the connections between plastic waste and climate change and how reducing plastic pollution really goes hand in hand with climate action. You know, there are various ways that plastic waste contributes to climate change. One of them is that plastic production and disposal is estimated to account for about 15% of greenhouse gas emissions. And that doesn't even include the emissions from that plastic burning we were talking about. Plastic pollution in either an ocean environment or on land or, you know, in a community where it's blocking the drainage channels reduces the resilience of those systems to climate change. For instance, flooding massively exacerbated when plastic pollution is blocking all the drainage channels. Or, for instance, ecosystem health in the ocean. You know, the ocean is a massive carbon sink. The more we disrupt the ocean ecosystem, the less effective that important carbon sink is going to be, currently estimated to absorb around 30% of global carbon dioxide. There's much more to be done, and although COP26 is an important chance to take action as a planet, it is only the beginning of resolving the complex and interrelated problems our world and its ecosystems are facing. Something like 40% of plastic waste is single-use food packaging. Now, that's not necessarily essential, whereas you could argue that having clean, safe, sterile medical supplies is important. And thought of a plastic-free world, you know, maybe that's not the way to go. Maybe it's identifying the sort of capacity of the planet to actually properly recycle plastics, essential plastics, but get rid of the non-essential plastics. 
Thanks for joining us for Life Solved. If you want to find out more about research at the University of Portsmouth, go to the website port.ac.uk. We'll be back next Thursday with the first of our COP26 In Focus programmes, where Dr. Amitava Roy will look at the road ahead for decarbonising our global energy systems. Catch you then.